You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, the Olympics! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Ashlyn Noble, and I'll be your host today. With me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. I feel outnumbered by the L names now. (laughs) The Olympics are an internationally renowned sporting competition, so much so that I would be quite surprised if any of our listeners were unaware of them or even the fact that they're coming up shortly. Countries make elaborate proposals to convince the International Olympic Committee to hold the games in their cities. The CBC plays beautiful, heartwarming montages of athletes and their backstories. And everyone feels happy and inspired for several weeks while amateur sports enthusiasts compete against one another in good, clean, peaceful competition and absolutely no cheating is endorsed or permitted. That sounds like the Olympics, right? Like, what What competition are you talking about again? <laughs> I'm not familiar with this one. So I was a big idealist about the Olympics for a long time. It was very inspiring to me that almost every country around the world could get together and cooperate to hold these games and uh, that everybody showed up and pretty much got along for a little while so that everybody could play sports together. That was very much like, we can do this. Eventually the world government will be true and we can we can all get together. Wow, I was a much more cynical child than <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, even North Korea participates most of the time. Like, I I found the stats, and they're in there most of the time. They, uh, they've participated in something like seven of the ten last Summer Olympics, which is pretty good. There are 205 officially recognized Olympic countries, which is more than the UN recognizes. Some of the, like, territories that are not officially their own country are recognized as separate countries for the purpose of the Olympics, which is really interesting. I went into a way bigger wormhole than I needed to for that one. (laughs) I just kept going down and down of like, oh, this is so interesting. Uh, The only UN country that does not have its own Olympic team, anybody want to guess? The Vatican City. Uh, You mean the Swiss Guard aren't good at skiing? (laughs) Oh, boy, that would be a funny Olympic team. Yeah, they've never applied. So it's not that they're not allowed to, they've just never applied to be in the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. Yeah, so I don't know, I just, I, I still think that's really cool. But as I've gotten older and become a much bigger social justice nerd, I have begun to realize just how many problems and underlying issues the big shiny facade of the Olympics manages to hide. Wait till my segments. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to cover a few of those topics, but we absolutely aren't going to be able to touch on everything. Uh, I was actually quite surprised how many different branching topics that we uncovered as we were looking for what we were going to talk about. For example, something that's in the news really big right now is the huge sexual abuse scandal involving Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser. He has abused hundreds of women and girls over his tenure, many of which reported him to various authorities over many years and were brushed off or told that they were mistaken or shamed into staying silent. He was recently sentenced to many, many years in prison and will never walk free again. Certainly the hope of going to the Olympics had something to do with the athletes he treated and abused staying silent. 
Of course, they didn't want to be seen as troublemakers because that could affect their chances to go to the Olympics. I read a really interesting article about the culture around it and the coaches on that team. Mm -hmm. It's about how it was facilitated for for them to stay silent. Yeah. Hmm. The one that I came across was uh, eight times Nasser could have been stopped in the last 20 years and wasn't. These are eight separate times that we know of that somebody he abused went to the authorities and nothing happened. Oh, that's horrendous. My heart breaks for these people. It's just, oh, I can't. So the power and status that the Olympics helped provide to that man definitely contributed to his ability to abuse people for such a long time. And unfortunately, I have no doubt that stories like it are way more common than we would hope. Like, he's not the only guy to use that kind of power in such a terrible way. Right. But we're going to start out with one of the big myths about the Olympics, that it brings economic prosperity to the region that hosts it. I actually remember the first time that this was, like, brought into question for me. It was the 2000 Athens Olympics. And I remember the reporters on the CBC feed that I was watching were talking about how they couldn't sell tickets to the events. Like nobody actually wanted to go watch the Olympics in Athens. And that was mind blowing to me. (laughs) So what did you uncover about that, Lauren? So let's play a little game. Don't worry, it's not fun. So you're the mayor of a mid to large city in a fairly well-developed country. You and your council and your sports commission decide to put in a bid for an upcoming Olympic Games. You think of the benefits to hosting, and you think of the money that it's going to cost. No one is disputing that it costs a lot of money to host the Olympic Games in your city. But it takes money to make money, right? Right? Sure. That's what they say. During the games, there's tourism and broadcast payouts, and after the games, there's better city infrastructure and a bunch of new facilities for the city to use, as well as the world renown. Your city can't help but win from the experience, so of course you want to toss your proverbial civic hat into the ring of potential hosts. But not so fast, virtual mayor. Let's take a look at this a bit more closely. First of all, your bid. Bidding for a games is an expensive prospect in itself, one with no guarantee of any return. Putting together a slick bid package can cost a few million dollars. The selection of a host city is done between four and seven years before the game in question to allow for planning and for infrastructure development. Were you to bid, you may not even still be mayor when the games came to your city. You would also have to liaise with your National Olympic Committee and get approval, and they also help with the funds. The bid process consists of two rounds. First, cities and National Olympic Committees, NOCs, submit a preliminary bid, becoming applicant cities. Through analysis of questionnaires, the International Olympic Committee gives a weighted average score to each city based on the scores obtained in each of the questionnaire's 11 themes. There's political and social support, general infrastructure, sports venues, Olympic village, environment, accommodation, transport, security, past experience, finance, and legacy. IOC's executive committee then selects a shortlist of candidate cities. Candidate cities are investigated by the evaluation committee, which makes an evaluation report. These cities submit a much more extensive bid book, this is where the millions come in, and are subject to additional evaluation, which is presented to the other IOC members. Voting occurs as an exhaustive ballot, which may have several rounds until a single city gets the most votes, same as they do for the Pope. (laughs) Recently, the IOC has struggled to find candidates to host the Games. So, for example, Poland, Ukraine, and Sweden originally bid to host the Winter 22 Games, but cancelled their bids. They were citing either lack of local support to host the Games or the high costs involved. People are like, nope, don't want it. Let's say that against all odds, your virtual city has been selected to host the 2026 Winter Games. That decision will actually be made in September 2019. So, after that date, mentally move this number up to keep the podcast evergreen. (laughs) 
So you're hosting. Now what? Now infrastructure, stadiums, ski hills, parking, housing for athletes, hotels for visitors, and updated roads. Now logistics. Travel to your city, travel within your city, security, volunteers, employees. The winter games are smaller and less expensive than the summer games, but with more outdoor sports, you have to be able to ensure snow and other weather conditions, as well as facilities to provide the perfect balance between missing the action and freezing your fingers off for thousands of people. That surprises me that the winter ones are less expensive, because I would think like you're talking like ski hills and things like that sound like they would be really expensive to build. A lot of the summer stuff is just outside in the natural environment. But like, think of like <laughs> swimming pools, right? Those are yeah. and stadiums because yeah, you can't just have like a soccer field. You have to have a soccer field that can hold 50,000 people and multiples because you have to play tournaments, right? Whereas like ski hills, usually these are in cities where these hills naturally occur. Yeah. You don't like, build like, a mountain. You're not coming to Winnipeg for alpine skiing, right? Why you don't come to Manitoba. Because like Spring Hill is about the best we can manage we'll do it and that is mountain. I mean, and that's something, but that's like <laughs> that's like like little bunny hills for these skiers, right? Yeah. So you're going to a place where the mountains, like that part of it makes sense. And I mean, while you need to make some artificial snow, it's also done during a time where there's likely to be cold weather and mm-hmm. snow. And um, like arenas and that are expensive as well, but they're also much smaller. So you don't need as many as like you would, as many things as you would for like soccer or something like Plus that. there's less sports for the winter games. Mm-hmm. And less countries participate. Exactly. Yeah. Except Jamaica, they're always there. Are they still always there? Oh, Jamaica, we got a bobsled team. That's Ashlyn's, like, one of her favorite movies. I used to love that movie. It was great. <laughs> it was so inspirational. Anyway. So if we've moved on from hosting, and the fact that Winnipeg is never going to make a short list, ever. Nope. Nope, nope. <laughs> so let's think of the jobs. Let's look at these jobs. There's an increase of construction, so that provides both skilled and unskilled, well-paid jobs, until the games. Barcelona hosted the 1992 Olympic Games, and they produced 88.7% of that year's decrease in unemployment. Hmm. So after the Games that year, the unemployment rate rose by 2,100 persons. (laughs) Both the Los Angeles 1984 Games and the Sydney 2000 Games are held up as examples of how to do the Olympics right. Both cities had post-game plans for the facilities and infrastructure, and implemented them well. The LA Games were the first to be broadcast around the world, so they had that going for them as well. Really? They weren't broadcast before that? They Well, not around the world. So, I mean, you had, like, the NBC there, but they didn't have they worldwide link-ups for really? everybody. Yeah. That is... I didn't know that. That's astonishing. Yeah. Because that's just such a part of the Olympics for me. Like, what do you mean people on the other side of the globe aren't watching at the same time as I am? Maybe they don't care. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That was 84 was the first one. Good to know. Plus it's LA, so of course TV. (laughs) (laughs) LA also had the existing infrastructure to not need to build any new structures on the public dime. Any new buildings for the Olympics were funded by private investors. LA is the only modern games to actually turn a profit. (laughs) Ever. Oh, God. Even after paying back 60% of that profit to the IOC, they had over $90 million remaining for the city. That's not a huge amount of money. I mean, especially now, I don't know what it would be adjusted for inflation, but $90 million is a drop in the bucket for a city like Los Angeles. Yeah. And did did you hear the part about having to pay back at least 50% to the IOC? So if the games don't make a profit, do they have to pay the IOC? I'm yeah, sure they do. They still get their cut. 
I'm sure the IOC gets a whatever is made and yeah. then you owe them. <laughs> yes. Montreal just finished last year paying off from their stadium. That was uh, 30 years oh, for the yeah. stadium that never actually got finished. Mm-hmm. And it's been crumbling ever since. Oh, yeah. It <laughs> yeah. was crumbling during the games. <laughs> oh. Along with that, many structures built for the games are sadly abandoned afterwards because of the lack of need or they weren't built for long-term survival. God, how horrendous is that? Well, look at the Winnipeg New Stadium. <laughs> Athens hosted the 2004 games, and most of the very expensive stadiums fell into an unused disrepair. These games are considered a supporting factor in Greece's current economic problems, as outside of the building costs, the games went $5 billion over budget. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah, because, okay, so that's 2004, and Europe and Greece especially had a really tough time three, four years later. And right? still. And, and, you know, they're barely crawling out of that mm-hmm. now. So, yeah. You throw that in there, that makes total sense. Yep. That, that would be a contributing factor for them. Oh. So both the Rio Games and the Beijing Games required the displacement of many citizens to construct their infrastructure because they're, the games are held in usually large cities that are, they have a packed population. In Beijing, over 5 million people were displaced. Hmm. 5 million, causing a human rights outcry. The provinces of Manitoba and Saskatchewan here in Canada have a combined total of under 3.5 million. So I understand the differences in population density between urban China and rural Canada, but that is like picking up all of the folks in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and about half of Alberta, and telling them to scoot over to BC or Ontario, because we have to build some stadiums. Think of that, just clearing out the prairies to put up some stadiums. The 2016 Rio Games were the first held in South America ever. And unfortunately, they came about at the same time as the Zika virus was rampaging the area, and it was prompting many eligible visitors to stay home. And those who did go complained about the water supply and the crime. Does anybody remember the the water when they the first to the Olympic Village there? Yeah, it was a bunch of it was sewage, and they were finding dead bodies, and and oh, the God. water wasn't even turned on when the athletes moved in. Really? And when it did turn on, it was brown. Ugh. Yeah. I just uh, like. I was quite preoccupied with having a newborn around that time. Um, But I remember just them talking about how the beach in Rio was just garbage everywhere. The water was just filled with garbage. Yep. And it was, it is, to say this in the least offensive way possible, it's not surprising given the challenges that that city and that whole country has been having for many years. And recently they've been having a lot of political challenges. And that's a lot of uh, what's going on. Like originally, for the last hundred years, the games were hosted in cities that were already developed. Yeah. They had some infrastructure. And now they're looking at more lesser developed areas. Like this was the first one in South America. And I mean, Rio is a developed city, but not sure if it... Yeah, comparatively. Yeah. Uh, so that may, par- may be part of the problem. And also, again, countries are saying, no, this is way too expensive for us. Let's not do this. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't realize that the LA games were the only ones to ever turn a profit. Like, I, my impression was that they used to be really profitable because of all the tourism, and then they've gradually become less profitable. It was prestige, not profit, that cities yeah. and countries were going for. That's interesting. Yeah, so that makes us ask, is it worth it? Well, I'm obviously not a fan, so I'm biased. <laughs> I'm not an Olympic fan. You do get the increased volunteerism and the civic pride, and the new roads and facilities, as long as they're finished and they don't fall apart. 
you do get an influx of tourists and an increased presence on the world stage. You also get some great memories, but don't expect to make any money with those memories. But cities keep building and cities keep hosting and they have committees that are on that are way more, way more versed on this than I am. So they must know something. I found a lot of actual academic studies talking about the viability and the pros and cons for hosting the game. So we'll link some of those in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a great economic study there. <laughs> oh, it's done after every one. Well, of course, of course. Well, I mean, the cities themselves would need to do that accounting and mm-hmm. reporting and everything. So it's a great opportunity to look at that. And you can even do it with that type of sporting event versus some other type of sporting event to mm-hmm. want it to look at it and see it, like how does the Olympics stack up compared to other world championships of this, that, or the other. I often wondered how the difference, not for hosting cities, but for competing countries, when they switched from the both of them every year to the every second year model. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how much of a burden getting two full Olympic teams for one four-year cycle was, as opposed to getting your um, summer teams ready for this year and then your winter teams ready for two years later. I always I want to know those numbers. I couldn't find any studies about that. Wouldn't it be the same, though? Wouldn't it be the same cost just split up over, like, instead of having sort of a, a gradual build-up the four years and then a gradual build-up in the four years, then you'd have, like, it would just be more segmented because you have half going and, and then the, the other half comes and the half going. That's what I would imagine. Because they're not the same sport, so they're not mm-hmm. the same committees, so it probably costs the same. But I'm, I'm thinking of, like, the infrastructure behind that, like, the gearing people up for things, and I don't know. There's, hmm. It's all, I think it's all totally different Okay, I'm just curious. So hosting the Olympics is not a cash bag, as it uh, may have been portrayed as. I mean, I think that a lot of people believe that, right, still? Or no? I feel like it's got to be... It's got to be less common of a, of a belief now. I think it's. I think a lot of people really just see it as this idealistic thing, like you had been saying, and this happy time and this prestige thing. I think yeah. a lot of people honestly don't think about the money. I think, but they think know, it's a cool thing that their country wants to host. Yeah, yeah, it's cool and it might be worth it, but then they also can tell you the stories of this country's thing that's in disrepair and that country's thing. Like most mm-hmm. Canadians know the story of the Montreal Games, right? So. But many of those same Canadians will still be like, yeah, rah, rah, Olympics, let's do it. I just don't want to do it here. I mean, Canada's hosted the Olympics a few times now, so we haven't learned any lessons, obviously. Yeah, the most recent was Vancouver. Yeah, and that was not long ago at all. No, but uh, what is interesting is we've hosted the Winter Olympics twice, whereas the Montreal Games was... Was it winter, too? Or did we do it the was summer? summer? It was summer. summer so, again, that whole infrastructure thing, whereas the Winter Olympics ones were... There's less of that infrastructure. It's also, they were also put in places where there's really good economy and lots of tourism Mm -hmm. already happening and some of those kinds of things. Not that Montreal isn't, but um, I think it was a lesser blow. I remember mostly hearing for Vancouver, it was an issue of uh, like indigenous rights and there's a lot of controversy about, you know, using the land that hasn't been ceded and stuff like that. So I didn't hear as much you know, foo about building stuff. and So, the Olympic Games might not be super lucrative, but they're definitely 100% fair, and they're, uh, there's no controversies about that. Right, Laura? No. Sadly, no. 
What would an Olympics game be without some sort of a scandal, right? I mean, as much as we love the prestige and the opening ceremonies, which was always my favorite part because they were so glitzy and beautiful and dancing and all this kind of stuff, we love a good scandal, right? And the Olympics never fails to deliver there. When it comes to scandals, there's a few different types, but the ones that I'm going to talk about are judging-based scandals, or you might talk uh, about it as rigged judging or, or something like that. Some examples of some scandals that involve judging. In the 2016 Rio Games, in boxing, there were two unanimous decisions for fighters that, um, for them winning a certain match where most other people felt that they shouldn't have won that match. And when it came down to it, it looks like just at that games, the judges had put, or the governing body had put in a new judging system, and they were wondering if the the judges were accurate, competent in using that system. So that's where that scandal there. 2014 Sochi Games. So wait, did games. they ever actually resolve that? I didn't read into it too, too far. Um, Like, they had switched to this new scoring system. I think they're looking into how well it was managed, but I don't know exactly what the fallout was. So it wasn't necessarily they were cheating? No, no, it looks, it was more so, you know, are you using this new system, but you're using old criteria and thus giving unfair judging? That's the best that I can understand for it. If somebody out there knows this way better, let us know. The 2014 Sochi Games, there were several upsets in figure skating, including the women's singles competitions where there was a group of close competitors and they had very uh, similar skill, but the one who ended up with gold ended up with a very much higher mark. And so that was very questionable. Where did this really, really high mark come from? Another one in that competition was that a skater who fell twice during her program placed much higher than a skater who had a flawless skate. So Mm -hmm. wondering about how that happened. There was some questions about the ice dancing pairs competition there. And if there was perhaps some collusion between different countries' judges about upvoting each other's skaters in that competition. 2004 Athens Games, the uh, the South Korean gymnast uh, got a judging error that bumped him from the gold to the silver. And the Gymnastics Federation agreed that it was an error, but then refused to amend that decision because the uh, complaint was lodged too late, they Aww. said. Uh, 2002, the Salt Lake City Games, the Russians won the pairs figure skating over the Canadians. Most Canadians, like myself, cried. Um, And there was a judging scandal there where the French judge admitted and then recanted that she was pressured by the French Figure Skating Federation. And that pressure came potentially from a collusion between the French Figure Skating Federation and the Russian Figure Skating Federation to... Uh, downvote the Canadians in order to make the Russians win, so that way the Russians would upvote the French in an upcoming ice dancing competition. I remember watching that as it happened. Were you watching it? Uh, I watched some of it, but I I was still figure skating at that time, and it's still one of those moments <laughs> in my heart. And yeah. it was all anybody involved in figure skating could think of yeah. for a long time. And this is this is a really big one. And this one is honestly, when Ashlyn brought up the topic of the Olympics, this is like, 
that is what I'm going to talk about because this is still, when you Google Olympic judging scandals, it is the first three pages of results yeah, that you come yeah, up with. Definitely. You can't escape. Like, I was trying so hard to find non-2002 scandals, and this one was there. Yeah. Just we were on the couch, and we were all immediately experts in figure skating, even though we were at, we had absolutely no business. We're like, there's no way. That was ridiculous. you know. And I'm sure that there were hundreds of thousands of households all yeah. doing the same thing. So it was one of those cool moments where you're part of that whole phenomenon. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Everybody was part of it. And what makes it really interesting is that the skate was so powerful that even the commentators were basically calling it like that was a gold medal skate. And they're saying this on live TV and multiple different channels were doing this at the same time. And then the results come out and everyone is dumbfounded. And the commentators, some of them were even like, well, what the F was that? Mm. Like, this is, that doesn't make any sense. How can that be? So, and, and to have that, that scandal caught in real time, right? Where everyone saw it. And sure, we're not, I can say what, looks like a better skate and what doesn't look I don't know all the technical elements but even the people who are who are and the commentators many of them are past Olympians and and they know the sport in and out and for them to be like well what the heck is going on you can see the surprise there that it's not an expected sort of outcome Mm -hmm. or even a reasonable sort of outcome I think that contributed to everybody feeling so outraged because like if if the commentators hadn't been so sure, then we also wouldn't have been so sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And when you read the Wikipedia article, it does point out how Canadian news outlets really played <laughs> up this controversy over yeah. the ensuing few days and within that time as well. And I mean, I wouldn't have known who either of those people were without the scandal, but I remember like for years I would occasionally Google their names to see what was going on and I think they divorced or something and they it was did. sad. I didn't know that because I stopped, I stopped following for for a long time and so I was googling their names as I was preparing and it was Sally, Sally and Peltier and yeah. I'm like oh that's too bad oh well and that's the thing Canada fell in love with them while they fell in love with each other Oh, and they skated to love story <laughs> it's the sappiest thing ever but we all fell for it <laughs> I didn't <laughs> okay well two thirds of us in this room Lauren did, has so. no heart okay <laughs> I love you <laughs> So this was one of the biggest scandals and actually has it has had some repercussions and um, there's been changes to the way that skating is judged, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So that was that was one of the biggest things. But there was even a scandal before that at the 1998 Nagano Games in Japan. The Ukrainian figure skating judge was recorded on a phone call talking to four or five other judges, instructing them on how to rank the different ice dancing pairs that year. Yeah, that was something that they called block voting there, getting everybody on the same page from that. So in that case, the the judge was suspended from judging for one year. Just one. Just one. So it seems like a banning for life offense. It it really would, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? In the two thousand two uh, games, that ju- the French judge was banned for three years, and a couple other people. That's were not banned even for a whole Olympic years. cycle. Yeah, you could come back and judge the next Olympics. Exactly, and don't forget that it's not just the Olympics. I mean, yeah, these yeah. judges they judge the nationals in their country. They judge the worlds. They judge multi-continent events that are not the Olympics. They judge all sorts of events, right? So 
all of those competitions in the meantime. I mean, there are competitions, but like, yeah, it's not even an Olympic cycle, but there's so much more in it there. So especially for that one year suspension, you're off for a year, you're probably back in time for the next Worlds, right? You're net back in the time for another Nationals. It's mm-hmm. it's not that long. So something that you'll, you all probably would have noticed is that there's a lot of figure skating scandals here. It really does seem to be a sport that tends to lend itself to this or maybe doesn't do much to stop this from happening. Now, is it because it's so subjective? That's a really good question, Lauren. And when you think about it, figure skating, compare, let's compare skating sports, right? The two main skating sports, you've got, well, mm, hockey, whatever. <laughs> skating hockey, bandy, ringette. Okay, skating where you're not using some kind of a stick and some kind of object to be propelled across the ice, okay? <laughs> so skating events, you've got your speed skating and you've got your figure skating, right? Speed skating is a, a very, <laughs> a, you've got a timer. It's a very objective kind of sport, right? Yes, you have to have form in that, but you're not really judged on your form, really. You got to get there the fastest. Mm-hmm. You've got to follow a few rules, and you've got to get there the fastest. That's you what you have to do. Trip over those giant blades. Exactly. Yeah. And apparently, you you can't cut people off. If you switch lanes, you'll be disqualified. Which happened to the South Korean skater in 2014, mm-hmm. I think it was, and Apollo Ono. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. One because he was so pretty. The, the South Korean. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. <laughs> I digress. So that's your speed skating. Your figure skating, on the other hand, is very subjective, right? It's a fair, it's an artistic sport. It's it's not a, just about, it's all about the form, rather. It's all about doing, not just doing a jump, but doing it in a way that looks graceful and beautiful and stays in time to the music. And you have to not fall while you do that. But it's not the only subjective sport. There's actually more judged sports now than there ever has been. As they keep adding events, they tend to keep adding really subjective, artistic types of events. Even snowboarding is adding more events that are based more on your form and artistry of how you deal with this half pipe, how you deal with this rail, all those kinds of things. So a couple other uh, judged sports, things like Olympic diving. That's a judged sport as well, right? You're doing flips and twists and turns and all these kinds of things in there. Uh, Olympic ski jumping is also a judge sport, mm. which is, I didn't think that one at first, but it kind of makes sense because yeah. you're, you are looking at a person's form and how they came off of things. So that's a judge sport too, but you didn't hear of any scandals in diving or ski jumping. Are they just better at covering it up? <laughs> well, there's always that option, right? We can't discount this. This is the, the Olympics after all. <laughs> there was that one snowboarding scandal with the marijuana. Oh, Ross Rebliati? Yeah. Yeah, but he got his medal back eventually. Okay, so this was another rabbit hole that I fell down because I was looking at (laughs) the number of stripped medals. Okay. So he got his medal stripped, and he's one of only two Canadian medalists to ever be stripped of their medal. Does anyone know who the other one is? Ben Johnson. Yes. Yes. Okay, I couldn't remember if he was Canadian or not. I I was going to say Ben Johnson, and I'm like, oh, wait. Maybe he's not Canadian. I don't know. Rob got stripped of his medal because he tested positive for THC. But then they gave it back to him because 
marijuana wasn't actually on the list of banned substances. It's not a performance drug. No! No, no, but then they added marijuana to the list of banned substances, but the threshold is actually pretty high, so they want to make sure that you're not smoking it, like, during the competition, but they don't really care if you are otherwise. But this guy, who got his medal stripped for it, actually argues that it is a performance-enhancing drug, because he says, like, it reduces his anxiety, and it uh, it relaxes him. So it's like taking, like, a... Xanax. Xanax yeah, yeah. or something like that. I just like thought that. it was really interesting that he got his metal strip for it, but he still says, yeah, it's definitely a performance-enhancing drug, so I thought that was cool. And he actually tested positive for it again at another Olympics, but it was, like, a very low level, so he wasn't disqualified for it. Interesting. He says it was from secondhand smoke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whatever, Ross Rebliati. Doesn't Never. matter. Whatever makes you happy. <laughs> I did so much research for things that were not my topic. I know, it's so easy. I started learning so much about figure skating judging. I'm like, I don't need to go into this much detail. I'm talking about general rigged judging. Oh, figure skating, you never fail to provide. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, no, I have I another mean, theory for why figure skating is okay, full, of, go. Full, of, um, full of scandals. Because they're all divas. You know what? I was just about to say the more sequins there are, the more like drama you're going to have to have. But uh, no. Well, maybe. Okay. So why is it? I don't know that they're actually covering up judging, but the culture and how they deal with who are the judges for things tend to be pretty different in figure skating compared to some of the other major judge sports. There's uh, There's been um, some statisticians that have run analyses on the judging between different sports to see how the bias stacks up. And there's a professor of economics, Eric Zitzowitz, who has written a couple of papers about why there seems to be these judging issues in figure skating. So one of the big issues is that it's, first of all, it's who they're picking as their judges. So let's, so in ski jumping, for example, the International Ski Jumping Federation is the one that chooses the judges from around the world there. So it's their job. Whereas in figure skating, each national organization chooses the judge to go to the Olympic Committee. So they have more allegiance to their country than the other sports. Because if you want to be able to go, you need to be seen well in the eyes of that country, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a source of bias there. So just that difference can lead to a difference in judging. There also appears to be a big difference in the culture of judging. So of course, bias exists. And both in ski jumping and in, yeah, I know, shocker, right? <laughs> National bias exists, both in ski jumping and in figure skating. When there's a Canadian judge on the panel, they are going to upvote the Canadian ski. If there's a Canadian skier or skater, they're going to give them more points. That's, it's, it's one of those biases that's so hard to get around, right? One of the big differences, though, is that in ski jumping, this is whether it's known explicitly or implicitly, they balance for it. So if there's a Canadian judge and a Canadian skier, all the other judges will decrease their marks a little bit. So on the whole, it balances out for the skier. So you get a more even picture. Skating doesn't tend to do that, though. If there's a Canadian judge and a Canadian skater, the Canadian judge will give the skater more points. The other judges on the panel will also say, oh, there's a Canadian judge here for that Canadian skater. I'm also going to vote them up a little bit here. (laughs) And this is the culture that seems to be created and encouraged in figure skating. So you have a lot of this kind of thing. Now, why does this exist? There's a lot of complicated reasons. 
One of the reasons, though, is that there's a lot of needing to curry favor between nations, especially particular nations, because there are some countries that are figure skating powerhouses and produce a lot of the skaters and keep the sport going. And you need to make sure that you're keeping those people happy to make sure the keep sport keeps going. Oh, so wow. there's a lot of this kind of thing. So this leads to that whole vote trading thing that tends to happen. You don't hear vote trading in a lot of other sports, but figure skating... It's not an uncommon household word, if you will. You know, everybody's like, oh, they're just trading votes behind the scenes, right? So there's, there's a lot of reasons like that. That culture, they also tend not to have a very good conflict of interest policy uh. <laughs> in skaters. For example, at the 2014 Sochi Games, the Russian judge for the figure skating was married to the head of the Russian Figure Skating Federation. <laughs> Big distance there, right? I'm sure that person can remain entirely objective when they're when they're looking at skaters. Well, nothing happened at Sochi. I just talked about Sochi. It's <laughs> a joke. I know. I'm not good at those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the conflict of interest is there, and as I mentioned, or as we were talking about, rather. Penalties that are given for people who are found to be corrupt or contravening the rules tend to be basically that slap on the wrist sort of thing. Like a one-year ban, like we were talking about, that's almost nothing. Three years for other people, still really nothing. Whereas, back to that 2002 Olympics, some of the whistleblowers and other people involved in that scandal who were saying, hey, this judge was being influenced and these federations were colluding with each other and this is not fair, some of them received lifetime bans from the sport. But those judges, including that one, could still judge today if she wanted to. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So they have that culture of collusion and just keeping people quiet to continue the sport. So when I started... Um, this whole segment, I didn't really mean to talk about figure skating, but I just, I just couldn't help it. It just kept <laughs> coming at me. So I'm sorry, guys, if you don't like figure skating, but this is, this is where we're at. I should also mention one other thing. There also seems to be some judging on old political lines. Apparently there's the Cold War mentality can still be kind of strong among figure skating judges. And so Former USSR countries tend to vote similarly to each other or give uh, ranks similarly, whereas ten, the former West, air quotes, West countries tend to vote similarly to each other as well there. And so that is an interesting dynamic as well as the, the power in the sport. So after the 2002 games, figure skating changed its voting system. So you know when you used to be able to say that's a 5.7, that's a 5.9, you can't do that anymore. Mm. It's been many years since you've been able to do that, but that was a part of me growing up, you know? Who's going to get the 6.0? Is it possible, right? Who's going to get that perfect skate? I don't understand the new judging. I yes, it's very complicated. But I can give out a 4.0, no problem. <laughs> well, the, the other judging was simple, but it obviously had its problems. So they brought in this new judging system that was going to make things a lot different. So now what they do is they have some technical analysts that do instant replay on all of the moves and assign it a score of difficulty. So they're looking at the technical part and then the judges are looking at the artistic part and then the judges' scores, they take them all 
and they throw out the lowest and the highest, and then I think either they throw out three of the 12 first, and then they throw out the lowest and highest and then average them, or they like, they throw out those lowest and highest, then randomly throw out one or two, and then average them. Wow. Yeah, so it's very complicated. It's supposed to be so that there's less of a, oh, obviously X country is voting, is judging like this today, or X country yeah. is voting like that today. That was the thought behind it. Hmm. But again, statisticians running numbers on this, they're saying that this new system, when you're just uh, taking out the lowest and highest, can be helpful because that can take out some obvious bias there. However, if you're just randomly taking out others, when they run analyses, it can really affect who gets what medal there. Mm. Um, when they were looking at the Sochi Games, I believe it, the gold medal placed uh, athletes still got gold, but the second, third, and fourth varied a lot depending wow. on how they randomized the different results. So yeah. that's a big deal. And I mean, yeah. when, for us, for spectators, or even for a sport, it kind of doesn't matter. But for somebody who's working really hard, it makes a big deal if it was just random happenstance that they got second versus fourth or vice yeah. versa. So there's there's problems with that. Yeah, why there. even compete if your aptitude is not what's getting you the accolades? It's right. And then there's also some questions about, uh, is it fair to have a separate set of judges testing one part of it and then a different set of judges testing the other part of it? Because before the judges used to do both technical and yeah. artistic scores for the same skater. So there's some questions mm -hmm. about that fairness. There's some arguments on up and down. Here's the technical scores and here's the artistic scores. Exactly. So there's some questions about that. But the biggest change that they made is they moved to anonymous voting. Oh boy. So... Up until 2002, you could tell the Russian judges vote like this, Canada vote like this, Ukraine this. Now, uh, or after that, it was it was all anonymous. And the reason given was that that way the judges would have less influence from their federation. So if their federation was saying, "Hey, you've got to vote, you've got to judge like this," right? They can tell and then them. they they can do what they want. However, the counter argument is actually it gives them more impunity to just do whatever they wanted to do yeah, there. Yeah, both ways. If, if the judge isn't inherently corrupt, then that's good. But if the judge is inherently corrupt and wants to mess with the system, it's much easier this way. Exactly. And then the bigger question, too, should be, why are there so many inter national federations that are putting so much pressure on their judges to, to judge in ways that are not consistent with the rules of the sport? Shouldn't you be doing something about that? <laughs> so I believe after the Sochi games, they moved to non-anonymous judging again. So this games will be interesting to see what we see, but... Judging scandals will probably prevail as long as figure skating continues. All that glitter and sequins and pretty footwork has to has to come with a negative price, I suppose. And gay, gay athletes. They're not Ooh. all gay. <laughs> hey, one of them's finally out okay. and going to the Olympics. So. There you go. That's great. <laughs> Even Johnny Weir wasn't out when he was in the Olympics. So. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, he's got Pence leading the delegation. So, uh, yeah, he's spoken out against that. Like, I don't really want this guy who wants me dead leading the Olympic delegation. I've earned my spot here. He hasn't. Yeah. I feel like that has a lot of merit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
Lauren is going to tell us about another aspect of bias inherent in the Olympics. Back in ancient Greece, the Olympics were for cis dudes only. Only male athletes could compete. Naked. We're getting there. Naked. Only male athletes could compete. And oiled. And only men and Vestal Virgins could watch. The fear was that women spectators would wilt the strength of Olympia's hero warriors. Wilt at the strength. (laughs) No, they would wilt at the strength or would wilt the strength? They would wilt the strength. Oh, wilt the strength. So women watching them would make them uh, limp. It seems like the opposite usually. (laughs) To prove their manhood, the athletes had to compete. Naked and oiled. (laughs) The oil was not to prove their manhood. Naked. Naked. Yes. A competitor or non-approved spectator, sans visible penis, was punished by being thrown off of Mount Tepeyan. Is that high? It's a mountain. We've got little mountains here in Manitoba, I don't know. Yeah, you'll still die if you get tossed off of it. <laughs> I think our mountains, so you just roll down. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have mountains here in Manitoba, I'm sorry. Mount Baldy. Death by mountain toss was most likely a good reason to avoid watching a couple of guys run... <laughs> tossing. Death by mountain toss was most likely a good reason to avoid watching a couple of guys run around a track, no matter how fun that sounds. But 1894, when the modern games were introduced, that was a much more enlightened time, right? Sure. No. Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympiad, wasn't into throwing spectators off of a mountain because he believed competition should be for the solemn and periodic exaltation of male athleticism with female applause as its reward. Wow. <laughs> Wait, what year was that again? 1894. Oh, perfect timepiece right there. <laughs> yeah. Women's sports, according to Pierre, were uninteresting, unesthetic, and incorrect because sweat sullies the graceful essence of femininity. Old Baron Pierre got his way to start, and women's sports were not introduced to the games until 1928. He still objected, and so did the Vatican. Of course they did. But a curtailed amount of events were given women's divisions. It's okay, the Vatican doesn't compete. Yeah. They don't get a vote. (laughs) Swiss Guards on skis, 2019. So of course, female athletes were given the same respect and admiration that their male counterparts were. No one ever described their looks or marriageability, and all reporting focused on their prowess. No reporters called them freaks of nature or questioned their orientation or identity ever. Right? Seems unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, all of that still happens today. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah. The Olympics, and professional sports in general, are the same sort of show as the rest of modern society. Yep. If you Google Olympic sexism, you get links to listicles like the 10 most sexist things at the Rio Games. Wow. And a brief history of sexism in the Olympics. Male athletes and coaches are shown to give, be given more speaking time, and their sports are given more coverage and pride of place in the event schedules. Female Olympians have the added pressure to prove their biological sex by whichever form of testing is in vogue at the time of the Games. From the 1940s through the 1960s, female athletes had to provide a certificate from their doctor to say that they were eligible to compete as women. After that, there were the demeaning nude parades, where every athlete competing as a female had to show their genitalia to IOC doctors up to and including a vaginal exam. Wow. What? So the nude parade was considered bad form into the 60s, and the Olympics switched to the bar body test. It's a chromosome diagnosis using cells from the inside of the cheek. If the test showed the presence of the bar body, which is a dormant X chromosome, the athlete was certified as female. 
Woe betide any competitor who had XXY chromosomes or any of the hundred of other variations in the human genome. Yeah. Now the Olympics committees say they only test if there is a question about the athlete. So if someone performs well or doesn't look traditionally feminine, they are at a risk for both an invasive exam and a chromosomal test. And they can be stripped of all of their medals at a whim unless they can prove their bodies are unresponsive to androgens. And I don't care who you are. If you're a professional athlete, you are going to have elevated levels of testosterone in your body. It's just going to happen. And you're going to be somewhat genetically different from the rest of the population who does not perform peak physical tests every day. That's what gives you an advantage in sport. Mm-hmm. No one questions male athletes and their elevated testosterone and androgen levels. They're the heroes. So why are we constantly questioning athletes who have been assigned female at birth? Nature's messy. Gender and sex are spectrums. Why are we still putting up with this? I wanted to also get into the inherent racism baked into the Olympics, but this piece has made me too angry already, so I'm going to stop there. There's, there's so many articles about how many more men are given speaking time, and even, where, even sports where women's teams are known to be better going into the games than the men's teams the men's teams are given full schedules and the women's teams aren't even shown on the television. Oh, yeah. So like Olympic soccer, the American women's team was dominating. They weren't even on the American television networks. That's that's ridiculous. It just makes no sense. And then then the media will come back and say, well, no one wants to watch it. It's like, well, maybe if you showed it, people mm-hmm. would watch it. <laughs> and also remember that for women's sports, you have to do it all while looking graceful and wearing a full face of makeup. Ugh. Speaking of figure skating, or gymnastics, or synchronized swimming. Beach volleyball has always been the one that gets me. 97% more people will watch women's sports if they have to wear a bathing suit or bikini. Yep. Yeah, that's so frustrating. Something that just occurred to me. I'm sure it is, but I don't know. Is there even a men's beach volleyball division? Yes. I don't think I've ever seen that wear, on TV. They don't wear Speedo. No. They, <laughs> like they wear, like, trunks or something? They wear singlets and trunks, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Since the 2012 Olympics, the rules regarding the beach volleyball dress code for women have changed. The beach volleyball dress code that existed since 1996, when beach volleyball first became an Olympic medal event, gave players basically two options, bikini or bodysuit. But because athletes typically only don bodysuits in cold weather, the official uniform of beach volleyball is the bikini. But they're, like, they're pretty full-coverage bikinis. Yeah, they're like like half tankinis. Yeah, they're not they're not like the little triangles of fabric. Well, but that would be that would be a hindrance to playing, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's not supportive. It's not helpful. Like Mm. especially if you have ties, that's going to come undone. Like that's that's a pain in the butt to deal with. So a bikini allows a maximum side width of seven centimeters and is not the quote most religiously or culturally sensitive uniform yeah so as of the last summer games olympic beach volleyball players are also allowed to wear shorts and a top the top can be sleeved or sleeveless the shorts are limited to a maximum length of three centimeters above the knee that's not that bad no that's a that's a good change it's an improvement Mm -hmm. that is shorts tops more rabbit holes for the olympics add it to my show notes so many. So maybe we should do a show every two years about the Olympics. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Back 
to the topic that got us started on this Olympic rabbit hole when we talked last month about cover-ups. The the big cover-up that I wanted to talk about was the Russian doping scheme. And holy moly, is there a lot more information out there than I expected. (laughs) It is a lot, and it goes back a long time. A lot of people involved in it say that there probably hasn't been a fair, undoped Russian team ever in the history of the modern Olympics. Wow. So... It goes back a while, and some people are even saying, like, we just have to throw out the medal counts forever and um, (laughs) throw out the Olympics. Yeah. The Russian Olympic team has been banned from competing at this year's Olympics after an extremely organized and well-run state-sponsored doping program was uncovered. Uh, And the fact that they weren't actually banned from the Rio Olympics was the subject of a lot of controversy, since uh, a lot of it was kind of known in advance. And there were quite a few people who actually thought that they wouldn't ban them from this one either because they're being all wishy-washy and "Eh, we don't want to upset them. But they they are, in fact, athletes will not be able to compete under the Russian flag. There have been a series of um, compromises. Right. (laughs) But first I'd like to tell you about a documentary that we watched, (laughs) which I recommend you all go uh, check out on Netflix. It's called Icarus. This guy, Brian Fogel, he is an amateur cyclist, but he's like a really good amateur cyclist. Um, he participates in a race in France that's like the, apparently it's like the seven hardest days of the Tour de France that are just put all together and it's only for um, like amateur guys. And he placed 14th the year before he made this film. So pretty good. But then he like couldn't walk for two weeks. Right. <laughs> he was pretty destroyed. So he wanted to make a documentary about what happened if he started doping and tried to get it past the authorities. So obviously he wasn't gonna, you know, like, make this a real cover-up because he was documenting everything. And So he tried to find somebody in the U.S. who would help him. And that proved very difficult. They, I guess, started helping him out and then they were like, actually, I don't really feel good about this. <laughs> Especially, I think, it being a documentary. Right. Um, So his U.S. doctor got him in touch with uh, a guy named Dr. Grigory Rodchenkov. Quote, What Fogel didn't know when he went to Moscow to trail his new friend around with a camera was that he'd wind up inside Russia's National Anti-Doping Laboratory, which was really a front for Russia's state-run program to juice its Olympic athletes. (laughs) So this guy, Rodchenkov, would, like, Skype him... Usually shirtless, just, he was a big fan of just naked Skype calls. Or he really, or he's channeling the Putin. I don't know, maybe, yeah, yeah. They were buds, but Putin now uh, denies ever knowing who he was. Of course Of course. Uh, And they would talk about his regimen, and so uh, Fogel was, like, injecting testosterone and human growth hormone and uh, EPO, you know, whatever he could get his hands on. And it's all perfectly legal to have and to use as long as you're not an athlete. Right. Um, And a lot of it is used in, like, anti-aging regimens for usually men who want to go backwards in time. And so it's all fairly readily available. Some of it, like, some of it you need a prescription for, but some of it you don't even need a prescription for. So he didn't have any trouble with that, and he was getting urine samples every day and putting them in the freezer for later. Uh, So one of the things that I learned... P-pops. ...was that these WADA labs, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, do not accept any samples from anywhere other than, like, an official competition. So you can't just be Joe Schmo and send in your samples and get it tested. It has to be part of 
You have to be like a qualified athlete in a okay. competition. And okay. this is designed so that people can't just send in as many samples as they want and then figure out how to cheat the system. They don't right. want people to be able to do that. But Brian wanted to get his samples into one of those labs so that he could see whether he could cheat the system. And so this Rodchenkov guy is the director of Russia's National Anti-Doping Laboratory. Was. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Uh, and he was like, oh yeah, no problem. Just bring them to Russia and, and I'll get them in. Like, and he's very well known there and, uh, can basically get away with anything, even though the whole place is just like totally wired with cameras and sound and barcodes and everything else. Okay. So he starts his project and then goes and does the race and he doesn't do very well in the race actually because his bike breaks down. (laughs) Um, but he says that if his bike hadn't broken down, he would have finished at or above the level that he did the previous year, but the difference was that after the race, he felt fine. Like, he would do it again the next week. Hmm. So his, like, recovery was super... Right. And after that, he took all of his samples that he had packaged up and took them to this Redchenko guy. And he had his cameras and everything, and, like, other people in the agency were like, I guess if the director is bringing cameras in here and media, it's not a big deal. Like, they didn't really question him. They just like, oh, he can do whatever he wants. So this guy has footage from inside the anti-doping lab. Goes back to the States, and just a little while later, the the 2016 report, um, the McLaren report, laid out proof of at least a thousand Russian athletes doping in 30 sports. And so suddenly there are, you know, a lot of focus on Dr. Yeah, Chenkov yeah. and, and everybody else. Yeah. So it's, it goes from like, he even says like he was inspired by documentaries like Super Size Me, like to do something ridiculous and just right. see what happens. Because what's and, he got to lose, right? Yeah. And suddenly he's got footage of an incredible news story that's going down. Hmm. Cool. Rodchenkov came to the States to stay with Fogel, and he was sheltering him, and he he had a visa to come to the States because he's always been invited for, like, talks and stuff, to give talks to sports organizations, and so he got uh, a round-trip ticket, but only intended to use the One Direction. Um, his wife and kids stayed in Russia. Hmm. They have been, you know, interrogated and followed and everything else, but apparently they're still Okay. Um, and, and Rodchenkov agreed to kind of spill all of the beans. And so he started telling everything that has been going on. And Hmm. so it was discovered that there basically has never been, despite the name, any anti-doping agency in Russia. It's just a completely state-sponsored conspiracy to make their athletes the best and to cheat the system by any means possible. Um, he was asked, like, in the Sochi Olympics, how, like, what percent of the athletes did you, do you think would have tested positive if it had just all been on the up and up? And he said, oh, upwards of 50%, no problem. And I, and I think he was still even downplaying that. Yeah. The method that they used to do this was, like, a supervillain comic. (laughs) Okay. The way that it's supposed to work is that the athlete gives a sample. The sample is split into an A and a B cup. They have special caps on these cups that uh, lock on, and they are supposed to be 100%. You cannot get these caps off without destroying them. So 
If you try and, you know, remove the sample and replace it with a clean one, uh, you will screw up the top and uh, they'll know. Right. What would happen is that they would take these samples and they would just immediately throw out the A sample and replace it with clean urine for the test. The B sample was more tricky because the B sample goes into long-term storage for if you need to retest the sample or if the first one comes back positive, then you have to test the B sample and they both have to be positive for it to be like a, a thing. Right. So there was a hole in the laboratory wall that they would pass the samples through. A KGB agent would take the sample, take it out of the lab, out of the secured lab. They had a special tool that they had figured out how to get these caps off. They would return it 30 minutes later with the cap loosened. They would dump the dirty urine, replace it with a clean sample, and then throw it into long-term storage. At two in the morning. Yeah, it was like a seriously... So that way the lab (laughs) didn't know what was happening. I don't even know if it was that. It was just like, because the the people working it definitely knew that the samples came back opened and, and what they were supposed to do with it. But yeah, this method to get the caps off were was the the tricky part. So they throw out A sample, so that's always immediately negative. Yeah. Right. And then B sample, they surprisingly get negative yeah. <laughs> all the time. After a little delay. It's always a little delay. But well but, but they're slow. they're not gonna notice because the B sample isn't even tested unless the other one exactly. comes back. Exactly. But right. this was just for like because sometimes Assurance. they will unfreeze them to test past years ones because they've come up with better methods, right? So they wanted to make sure that none of those ever came back positive either. Right. <laughs> okay, so they once they figured out what was happening, the the team that was investigating this went back and they uh, said we we looked at a number of the the B samples that so any of them that were like questionable, any of them that we had any suspicion of, we checked for these tool marks. of the suspicious samples had those tool marks on them. 100%. Like, there's just... They screwed with all of them. This was all the way up to Putin, all the way up to the the Minister of, of Sport in Russia. All of them were in on it. And apparently, this is just, like, the culture in Russia... The doctor, Rachenkov, he was talking about how when he was a 15-year-old doing track and field, his mom would shoot him up with the doping drugs because that you just did that if you wanted to be a decent athlete in Russia. You wanted the same benefits that everybody else had. Hmm. So it's not even really considered unfair. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's so normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, uh, everybody involved in st- that's still in Russia still denies everything. So there were two guys besides Dr. Rodchenkov who could have spilled the beans on this. Two of his colleagues died unexpectedly within weeks of each other in February of 2016. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> oh Russia. Nikita Kamayev, former head of the anti-doping agency. And then so there was... Boss. Yeah. Vyacheslav Sinev. He was the head of Rusada before Nikita, and he was 59 years old. And so those were the only two other people who had any evidence of this happening. And they were like, boom, boom, done. And uh, Dr. Rachenkov figures the only reason that he's not dead was because he was in the States. And so he's now permanently in the witness protection program in the States. And we'll probably never see his family again. Because if he ever goes back to Russia, he will be assassinated. Russian Olympic official says doping whistleblower should be executed. 
That's just the headline of this article. Oh. <laughs> Leonid Tiagachev says Grigory Rachenkov should be shot for lying. So, yeah, this scam has been going on since as long as there have been the Olympics. And it's just so ingrained in Russian culture that they never had an anti-doping agency. It was all just a cover for this elaborate thing. And uh, apparently the only thing that Rachenkov never like refused to do for for Putin was he was asked to take some Ukrainian samples which were negative and make them positive. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that he refused to do. He he also carries a lot of guilt because he feels like after the Sochi Olympics, um, Putin's popularity was falling, falling, falling. And then at, after the after and during the Olympics, they went way up, like to like ninety percent popularity. There were a lot of Russian golds in that. Olympics yeah, yeah. So the most was, Russian golds in, exactly yeah. on home I, on home turf. So he was super popular again, and immediately after he went and invaded Ukraine and Crimea. Mm-hmm. And so Rachenkov feels a lot of guilt for that. He feels like, you know, if we didn't do as well in the games, would he have invaded and, you know, mm-hmm. would there have been all that political impetus? It's a really complicated story and a lot of people seem to be on the side of like, well, of course he came forward because he didn't have any choice. But yeah, I mean, but he still did. He did what he could. Russia is officially banned from participating in these Olympics. However... The International Olympic Committee didn't want to totally shut out the athletes who had worked so hard for this. And so the compromise was that anybody who could prove that they were clean had like a, a testing record and whatever. From a non-Russian anti-doping I, yes. agency lab. Yeah. <laughs> they could participate under a neutral flag. So that means that they will walk under the Olympic flag. If they win gold, they will... Um, the Olympic theme will be played instead of the Russian theme song, and they will participate as Olympic athletes from Russia, rather than Russian Olympic athletes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the criteria that they used to determine who was eligible for that was very opaque, despite their promises to make it transparent. It's the IOC, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and they still have quite a lot of participants coming. They officially cleared 389 Russian athletes to potentially compete, which seems like a lot of people who could absolutely prove that they were not involved. Basically, Russia is sending this almost like a very similar number of athletes than they have sent to previous Winter Olympics. So it hasn't really curtailed their activity that much. So it'll be interesting to see. I feel like they will probably be under a lot more scrutiny. Probably a lot more testing. And yeah, it's very interesting. It's like, okay, well, that's a lot of extra expense then for those athletes to incur. And like, where are they? How are they making sure that they haven't just found another route to do the same thing? If it's if the like athletes from Russia are the same size team as they would have sent Mm -hmm. otherwise. Right. And there was a lot of noise before the decision that Russia would just boycott the games if they were not allowed to compete under their own flag. That was what they were telling people, I guess, to sort of try and put pressure on them not to make that decision. But it looks like that's not happening. So I looked up the number of medals that have been stripped. All but five of any Olympic medals that have ever been stripped were infractions stemming from doping and drug testing. 
Russia leads the pack by far. (laughs) (laughs) So Russia has had... uh, So this is... Okay. Soviet Union slash Russia slash unified team. They have had 52 total medals stripped from from all of the modern Olympic teams. The next highest total is 11. (laughs) And the most of any country, four times the number of the runner-up, and more than a third of the global total. Yeah, like that says something about it. So they were, there was also a study where they looked at something like 5,000 samples from many different games. And one of the researchers like, yeah, country A has a ridiculously out of proportion number of these (laughs) suspicious samples. And country A is Russia. We were double-blinded, and we knew it was Russia. (laughs) Uh, Russia, and then Belarus has 11, Ukraine has 10, Kazakhstan has 9, United States has 8. So So, so, so we have Russia, (laughs) Soviet bloc, and then the U.S. is over here. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Russia, used to Russia. Yeah, used to Russia. Russia. That's what USSR stands for, right? (laughs) I thought that this statistic has nothing to do with it, but I thought it was interesting. What do you guys think the um, medals stripped by gender ratio is? Like, what percent are men and what percent are women? I think, I'd say more men. Maybe, like, 70% men? I'm going to game it and say 82% women. (laughs) Uh, It is 52 to 48. So men have, like, a tiny edge, but I was surprised at how even it was. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect, I thought for sure it would be more men. Yep. So I thought that was interesting. (laughs) So yeah, Russia has a long history of uh, screwing over the competition in any way possible. (laughs) And they're very good at it in a superhero villain comic way. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's actually, that's really interesting that it's such a big thing. Because in my reading about the judging scandal, I came across the idea that back in the, it was in the 80s, that's when Russia came out with their state-sponsored amateur athlete program because up until then, athletes were supposed to be basically like dirt poor but really yeah. good at sports, right? Or like wealthy parents but good at sports. You weren't supposed to get outside funding. So yeah. now they had these people who had a salary and didn't have to work other jobs yeah. and had all the best equipment and stuff like that. And there was questions about whether or not is that still amateur, but the IOC let it go. Yeah. So even there, they're like, no, no. Amateur, they're just paid to do this all day. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's but they're state sponsored, so it is very interesting how it it's it all kind of falls in line. I never understood why NHL players were allowed to compete. They changed the rules um, a few Olympics ago to say that you could revoke your profes- professional standard and go back to amateur standards for the Olympics. That's bizarre. That's bull. What baloney. Because they wanted professional sports players. To draw people in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because until then, like, women's hockey was actually more popular than men's hockey. Can't have that. For a long time. And they're like, oh no, but the men's. So you get the (laughs) NHL players and then people will watch them. But then it's like, oh, so it's another NHL game? Okay, but now they're not allowed to do that anymore, right? I thought they were still. Like I thought, I thought this year they they weren't. I, I don't know. know. This year the NHL isn't participating, so I think. Right, but why? I don't know. Okay, 
that okay maybe that's what I had heard so they're sending which you know what it's bad they make millions they did not earn those spots on that teams and chance like NHLers are not by default, the best players. No. They are players that managed to make it into the professional circuit and now have a lot of notoriety, but they are not the best players, and they didn't earn those spots. So that is that is a cheap skirting of rules there. Two of the uh, Olympic women's hockey players are from Manitoba. Yeah. I went to school with one of them. Uh, and <laughs> two of the men's ones are also from Manitoba. Oh. See, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just I happened to hear that on the news. Um, I think... Haven't a couple of the... No, they rent... The the women's ones... Did, did they go to Sochi? Or was it a different, like, a Worlds or something? Because I thought a couple of those players, like... I've heard their names before mm. for some other... I know, like, Jocelyn did go to the last okay. Olympics, so... Yeah. yeah, that would be Sochi. So that's our story about the Olympics. Uh, again, there are so many more scandals and controversies and behind-the-scenes dealings we could have gone into but didn't, so we'll maybe prob- we'll revisit this in two years. <laughs> <laughs> there will be new controversies by then, I'm yeah. sure. There'll be more skaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, we'll, have, we'll know how this whole uh, not competing under the Russian flag thing turned mm-hmm. out by then. Yeah. So what are we talking about next month, Laura? We are going to talk about nutrition again, because it's my favorite, but we're also going to talk about all the very interesting and semi-plausible nutrition devices that are out there that may or may not tell you anything about your food or your health. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yay. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Have a great night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Say goodnight. Goodnight. <laughs> goodnight. Say goodnight. Bye. <laughs> Say goodnight, Gracie. <laughs>